Morning, everybody. My name is David Soren. I am the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, morning to you. Hey, this morning we are starting a brand new teaching series called Life's Biggest Questions, where we're going to take a look at the five biggest, most foundational questions of life. Now, these questions are different than what you may call the five most common questions of life. That may be more like, what should I be when I grow up? Or who should I marry? Or why did the TV show Lost have to end like that? Or you know, stuff like that. <laughs> We're looking at five questions that when we answer them, they completely shape how we live and our entire worldview. Uh, if you've heard that word before, a worldview is basically the lens through which you interpret the world. And so here are the five questions that we are gonna cover over the next five weeks. Now, I want to uh, submit to you this morning that we all answer these questions in one way or another. Now, not each one of us has thought and studied deeply on each of these questions, but nonetheless, the way that we are currently living our lives is actually an answer to one of these questions and to all of these questions. And so finding the right answer to each of these is incredibly important and foundational to your life. So much so that I want you to actually consider something. I want you to consider coming here for all five weeks of this series. Even if you don't, you're like, as the first time I've ever been here. Uh, even if you don't normally come here, even if you're a bit skeptical, what's five hours of your entire life? I want you to give it a chance. Now, if we get to the end of the series, even if we get three weeks in and you find that I am uneducated and irrational and crazy and none of this makes sense, then fine, then stop coming. But at minimum, if this sounds logical to you, like it could make some sense, I want you to commit to keep exploring the truth along with us, all right? Okay, let's jump into the first of life's biggest questions. So we're gonna do one question a week, and our question this week is, where did we come from? Now, I don't mean uh, where do uh, babies come from, uh, that's a, a different subject, uh, but I mean where did life on earth even come from? Or maybe even more importantly, where did the universe come from? Now, the Hebrews of the Old Testament believe that God created the universe. So if you were to look at the Bible under each chair, and you can if you'd like, and you were to turn to page one, what you would see in the very first words of the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 1, is this. It's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, could this actually be true? Could it be logical? Or is this just sort of the ignorant superstition of an ancient culture? Now, personally, this isn't gonna be a surprise to you. Personally, I believe the Bible, but you may not. I know many of you are visiting even for the very first time today. You may not. I don't know your story. But see, because I believe that the Bible is true, I believe that the supplementary evidence should also point to this truth. And so what we're gonna do with this first question today is we're gonna see not only what the Bible teaches on it, but we're gonna look at it also from what we see in science. And then in the subsequent weeks, we'll do a similar thing. So for instance, in a week two, when we talk about what's wrong with the world and how do we make it right, we're gonna supplement our discussion with other evidence from uh, philosophy and history and culture. Because I want you to see not only the Bible's teachings, but that there is a reasonable, reasonableness to the truth of its claims. Okay, so to explore today's questions, I wanna examine 
the amazing advances of science in three different fields of study. So let's take a look at our first field of study. Uh, it is this. It is the cell and DNA. Now, it may sound a little funny or odd to you to start this discussion on where did we come from with such a microscopic focus like the cell and DNA, but many scientists and philosophers actually start right here at this spot. So to do this, let's actually go back to the days of Charles Darwin in the 1850s and the 1860s. Uh, by the way, uh, speaking of Darwin, we're not going to get too deep at least into the evolutionary process today, because the process isn't as important for, as the cause for this particular question, right? We're asking where, not how, where did we come from? But if you are really interested in that and you wanna learn more about that, I encourage you to go to our website under our messages page. Uh, you can find a message called, Doesn't Science Contradict Faith? in our Reason to Believe series. You can hear a little bit more about that. But ever since Darwin wrote The Origin of Species in 1859, scientists since then have been speculating that perhaps there was some sort of primordial soup, that's what they call it, I'm not making that up, a present on Earth where if amino acids interacted randomly over millions and millions of years, the basic building blocks of life hypothetically could emerge. Now, I suppose that you could kind of imagine this theory to be true if the basic smallest beginnings of life were really, really simple, right? Uh, meaning if the irreducible minimum, that's like as small as you can get it, if the irreducible minimum of a cell was incredibly basic with almost no information or no components, like if that were true, then yeah, one might speculate, and it is total speculation at this point, but one could speculate that, okay, like a simple one cell, it could develop, everything evolves, and it builds from there. And in Darwin's defense, Scientists of those days, they didn't even know a fraction of what we know today about the cell and especially about DNA. However, it's not 1859 anymore. It's 163 years later, and we've now discovered that what's inside of the simple cell isn't actually simple at all. So what is it that we've learned, especially in the last 50 years about what's inside the cell and about DNA? Well, we've learned that DNA is literally encoded information into alphabetic or digital form. So DNA encodes instructions for proteins through a set of four molecules each of which represents a letter of genetic code. Uh, Bill Gates uh, once described it this way. He said, DNA is like a computer program. And he knew something about computers. Uh, you can look him up on Wikipedia later. But far, far more advanced than any software we've ever created. So just to give you an example of this, your DNA, human DNA, is written out in a code that is over three billion characters long. And so if you were to get on good old Microsoft Word and start typing out the genetic code for your own DNA in 12-point font, and then after you finish typing out, you press print, that stack of paper, the human genome, would be 424 feet tall. So comparison here for you. Here is the Statue of Liberty, and that is the code of your DNA printed out. 
And here's what's even crazier. That amount of code, that amount of DNA code is in the nucleus of each of your 40 trillion cells in your body. Isn't that amazing? Okay, so why does that matter for today's question? Where do we come from? Well, because remember, one of the main reasons that so many people walked away from faith and walked away from Christianity through the late 1800s and all throughout the 1900s was because many, many people thought, okay, amino acids can come together, they interact, and they make this really, really basic single-celled organism and life grows from there. And for so many people, that theory answered this question satisfactorily to them. That's where we came from. But we've now discovered that even the simplest, tiny little block of life isn't simple at all. In fact, we've learned that even the DNA of a single-celled organism, you remember learning this in school like, about like the protozoa, you remember single-celled organisms? So even the DNA of a single-celled organism is filled with operating code that tells that single cell what to do. In fact, this is fascinating. In the year 2010, uh, scientists removed as much info as possible from the most simple single-celled bacteria that there is. Uh, very similar to the kind of cell of the, very similar to the kind of first cell that some scientists have theorized gave life to us all and then started life on this planet. And in this study, they learned that the single cell, even in a single-celled organism, still had to have, in order to have life, 473 separate coded genes in its DNA. 473 unique software commands. Okay, what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that it's incredibly unlikely, honestly almost impossible, that a random event could have led not to something really simple, but what we've learned, that a random event could have led to something as highly complex and functional as what we've now discovered the cell in DNA to be. Honestly, it would be like lightning hitting a rock and creating a computer. That's what the old theory of where did we come from is saying. And so I think this is the first great example where the evidence, the scientific evidence, is now pointing in the direction of a creator. So to me, I love logic. And to me, the most logical conclusion, based upon the fact that we've discovered this complex operating code in the smallest form of life, to me the most logical conclusion is that there is a designer, that there is an author of the code. Now, does that still take faith? to believe that a designer, that God created humans and wrote that code inside of us for how to operate. Yeah, it still takes faith, right? Science doesn't prove God. However, it also takes faith to believe that a random and unproven event somehow created complex software-like functioning DNA. Everything takes faith. We say this a lot. I think a lot of people believe in what is a false dichotomy, that it's either faith or no faith. That's not true. Both sides take faith. You just want to figure out which side takes less faith. Does that make sense? 
Okay, now before we move to our, our second field of study, I want to point out, if you want to dive deeper into some of these topics today, I know some of you are like, this is interesting, but by Wednesday I'm going to be like, I don't know, whatever, right? And some of you are like, I live for this, right? Okay, if you're in the latter camp, um, out on the welcome table today, there are a number of books that I've read and studied on this subject. If you want to dive deeper, go out there, take a picture of them, order them from yourselves, for yourself. It's a great use of your time. And so I, don't steal my books, but take a picture, uh, and then I'd love for you to dive deeper. Okay, now let's move into a second field of scientific study and its amazing discoveries over the last 50 years or so. And that second field of study is is physics. Okay, first, let's look at what the Apostle Paul says in the Bible about this, because this is pretty amazing as well. He says in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So in other words, he's saying, when you look at creation, so you go up to the boundary waters in northern Minnesota, and it's night, and you look out at the vast array of stars, saying that when you look at creation, or you study the earth, or you study the universe, if God is real, you should actually see evidence of his design in the creation. And some of the greatest scientific discoveries of the last 50 to 100 years have proven exactly that. So let me give you some examples of this when it comes to our Earth. So one of the things we know about the Earth is the Earth is tilted, right? You've seen that on the globe or you looked at pictures. The Earth is tilted at 23.5 degrees. And we've learned that if it wasn't tilted at that degree, then we wouldn't be having this conversation today. <laughs> so if it was more straight up, our equator would be too hot. If it was tilted more, then we'd, our climate would be completely unstable. And there are plenty of examples just like this one, like the amount of precision and how close we are to the moon and how close we are to the sun and how big the earth is and the percentage of oxygen that we have and the amount of water that we have on earth. All of those have to be almost spot on for life to exist on our planet, which is incredible evidence that this planet is anything but an accident. Now, let me give you one of the most common responses or retorts back to that so you can understand the discussion. So sometimes people will respond back to that. Okay, that makes sense. That is indeed what the science says. But we need to keep in mind that there are millions upon millions upon millions of planets in our universe. And it may be that Earth just happens to be the one that has the right condition. It is the Goldilocks, the just right planet. Okay, that may be true. But the other thing we know is we can't escape the fact that the laws of physics are also finely tuned for the entire universe to exist in the first place. So let me give you some examples of this. So take gravity, for instance. Even if you were to increase gravitational force in the universe by one part in 10 to the 40th, so that's a one followed by 40 zeros. So you're barely barely changing gravity, even if you just change it at that incredibly minimal amount, our sun would cease to exist, and thus so would we. If you change the expansion rate of the universe by even one part in a trillion, it couldn't support life as we know it. 
If you increase the mass of the neutron by about one part in 700, nuclear fusion in stars would stop, and there again, there'd be no energy source for life. And we could go on and on like this. In fact, we could go on for so long that scientists now say that there are more than 30 30 separate laws of physics or cosmological principles. Cosmology is like the study of the origin of the universe. There are 30 parameters that have to be balanced on a razor's edge of precision in order for life to exist in the universe. See, the evidence in physics for a creator is now so overwhelming, just in the last 20 to 30 years now, that the prominent physicist Robert Griffiths from Carnegie Mellon has said this. Look at this quote. He said, if we need an atheist for a debate, I go to the philosophy department. The physics department isn't much use. How amazing is that? And this is happening in our lifetime. And so once again, we come to this massive question, where did we come from? And I wanna submit to you that again, you're brought to this position to make a leap of faith in a certain direction. In fact, let me just ask you, which direction the leap of faith feels smaller? Is it easier to believe that all of these finely tuned elements of physics were set in place by a designer who created the universe for you to live in? Or is it easier to believe that these 30 different laws of physics were all randomly tuned each to the right parameter for life to exist? By the way, I'm gonna cover um, more of the common atheistic objections to the finely tuned physics that we've discovered in our house groups video this week. So uh, get to house groups. If you're not in a house groups, in a house group, uh, these are our groups of people, about 30 people that meet together every week to get to know each other, to learn more about uh, the Bible. They are amazing. Over 80% of our church is in a group. Uh, sign up today. This is a great time to sign up. You can sign up in, in the lobby out there because it's gonna allow you to dive in and search for truth with other people. But let me cover at least one of the common objections uh, to what we're discovering in physics right now. And, and this one's become pretty popular in the last five years ago. So scientists that don't have faith in God, upon learning and discovering that all these laws of physics are set just right for life, are now saying, well, it may be true that our universe is finely tuned and set just right, but what if there are millions of universes and ours is the only universe that got it right? Now, this is what's called the, the parallel universe theory or the theory of the multiverse. But if that were true, you still have to answer the question, but where did all of those universes come from? Okay, so let's actually ask that question now of our universe, which is, by the way, the only universe that we actually have evidence for, because there are a ton of amazing, of amazing scientific discoveries that have happened in this field as well. So let's go to the third field. So we've talked about the cell and DNA. We just talked about physics. And let's spend a little bit talking about everything that's been discovered as it pertains to the Big Bang. And I actually want to start this section on the Big Bang with a famous argument uh, from science philosophy and logic, and it's called the cosmological argument. Remember, cosmology just means it's the study of how did the universe get started. Now, here's the argument. It's going to look like a bit of a mouthful at first, but I promise you in two minutes, this is going to make perfect sense to you. Here's the argument. Number one, everything that has a beginning has a cause. 
something that started it. Okay, number two, the universe had a beginning. Number three, therefore, the universe had a cause. Okay, let's walk through this. So premise number one, everything that has a beginning has a cause. So this is scientific fact. No one, and I mean literally no one disputes this in science. There's probably some guy in his mom's basement or something, right? But no, okay, nobody disputes this. So a tree, for instance, can't just appear outside, right? You'd say, oh, it, ha- it's, it has a beginning. So it has to have a cause, it's a seed, right? Does that make sense? Everything that has a beginning has to have a cause. It can't just poof into the air. Number two. What we've learned from science is that the universe has a beginning. Now, 100 or 200 years ago, scientists weren't so sure about this. A lot of people thought the universe just always existed. But today, basically 99.9999% of scientists believe in the Big Bang Theory, that there was a definite beginning to the universe. Now, maybe they don't believe to every single aspect of it, but they all agree, even the Christian scientists, that the universe had a definite beginning. Uh, I'll even quote the renowned theoretical physicist uh, Stephen Hawking for you, if that helps. Here's what Hawking said. He said, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Or what about Albert Einstein, who actually watched scientific views come into view uh, during his lifetime on this. Einstein said this, denying the evidence, because he used to think that the universe was eternal. He said, denying the evidence that the universe had a beginning was the greatest blunder of my scientific career. Now, our Bible actually makes this point about creation having a beginning. So I'm gonna read for you now Colossians from the New Testament chapter one. Look at this, this is so amazing. It says, for in him, in in Christ, in God, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay, so what then of those who say that the universe had a beginning, but it just began, it came from nothing, that there isn't a cause per se. Okay, well then let's go back to this cosmological argument. So look at it again, number one, everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe is one of those things that has a beginning, a scientific fact. So number three, therefore the universe has to have a cause, something that brought it into being. So if we just want to be logically consistent, you know that in no other realm of science would a scientist let you get away with, you know, say you're in a lab at college. You couldn't say, oh, I'm sorry, professor, this chemical reaction, it just happened. It came out of nothing. There's no cause for it. You'd never get away with that. And so if we're going to be consistent, the logic follows, then premise number three, that the universe needs a cause. It needs something or someone to create it. Now, there are a whole lot of people out there, uh, particularly folks who aren't science, who are content to just believe, I just believe that the universe popped into existence out of nothing. But as you can imagine, most scientists don't want to believe that because it doesn't make any logical sense. 
And so what do scientists say then if they don't believe in God? What sort of reason do they give for the beginning of the universe? Well, a lot of scientists say, well, we believe that there is a cause, but we just haven't discovered it yet. There are still other scientists who say, well, before the Big Bang, there was a gravitational singularity, but then they still have to answer the question of, well, what caused the gravitational singularity, right? Now, uh, this may bring to mind a question for you. If you're a Christian, and if you've ever had this discussion with someone who is not a Christian, and you started to explain to them that, okay, everything that has a beginning has to have a cause, surely you have heard the objection of when people say, okay, but then what caused God then? And I don't want you to, to snicker at that or anything. That's a good question. Right? The Bible says we ought to have reasons for the hope that we have. And here's the reason that we have for that. You see, nothing has to precede God. Look at premise number one. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. God doesn't have a beginning. God is timeless. He's outside of time. Psalm 90 verse two says it this way. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, if you just think about this logically, you can come to the conclusion that the universe actually has to start with something that doesn't have a cause. The person who doesn't believe in God is just going to continue to want to find scientific data about what caused the Big Bang, but where would it end? Okay, so let's say 40 years from now is 2062, and I don't even know how this would make sense, but let's just say that they discovered something scientifically that happened before the Big Bang, and they found it, right? But then you still have to ask the question, well, what caused that? And let's say you find something 40 years later, and you go, but what caused that, right? And 40 years later, like, but what caused that? And you can see that it's just an infinite end of causes. It never, it never stops, it never ends. And you can't just infinitely keep going backwards to more causes. There must at some point be an uncaused first cause. It's actually the only logical explanation for the beginning of time. See, because space, time, and matter all came into existence at the Big Bang, we can conclude that the cause of those things, therefore, would have to be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. And what does that sound like? It sounds like God. Look at the brilliance of the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 3. It says this, By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Okay, so what do we do with all this? Like when you start finding answers and evidence like this to life's biggest questions, the best thing that you can do is to live consistently with the evidence that you are discovering. I think this is difficult in our sort of postmodern American world. I'll give you an example of this. I heard an MIT a professor say once, that he actually described his children as nothing but a machine, a big bag of skin full of biomolecules. Um, men, never describe your wife that way right before a date, by the way. And then he said this, but, but I still love them like they're nothing like a machine. 
And then in a conversation, somebody presses this MIT professor and they say, how, as a scientist, how can you reconcile such a cognitive dissonance? And he said, I don't reconcile it. I just maintain two sets of inconsistent beliefs. And I just want to tell you, you don't have to live that way. Especially not anymore in this age of wonderful scientific discovery where the evidence for God continues to stack up. Now, if you were to study DNA and physics and the Big Bang and you looked at all the evidence and the evidence clearly showed that it was just baloney, the idea that God existed, it made no sense. Okay, if that's what the evidence said, then by all means, live consistently. Don't come to church. Don't read the Bible. Don't seek God. If all the evidence completely points in a different direction, then you don't need to seek that out. But if the evidence is actually pointing toward God, then live consistently. Then follow that evidence. You would want to do everything you could to find out who this God, this creator really is. And I just believe if God is real, there should be evidence for it. Not that's, again, not that science proves God, but there should be evidence for it. Uh, Lee Strobel uh, says it this way, and I think this is, is so well said. He says, faith in God is a reasonable step in the same direction that the scientific evidence is pointing. And what I want you to remember is there is faith either way. And so if you're gonna believe that the universe popped into existence out of nothing, and that our universe was just accidentally fine-tuned on a razor's edge for life to exist, and you're gonna believe that this incredibly complex operational code of DNA was a random accident like lightning making a computer, what I want you to realize is that all of those beliefs actually take an incredible amount of faith, a lot or you can have faith that there is a designer who created the universe and he created our earth and he created you, humanity. And he wants to know you. That, that's the amazingness of the teachings of the Bible, that not only, yes, there is a creator, but it's not that he's unknowable, he wants to know you. So much so what we teach here every week is that he wants to know you so much that he sent his own son to this planet on a rescue mission to die on the cross. And his son Jesus, when he's dying on the cross, he's dying for our sins. Because we're not perfect. You're not perfect. We mess up. We make mistakes. We sin. And God is just. But he sends his son Jesus to die in our place. And the Bible teaches that when you believe in that, that your faith in that is what washes away your sin. It's what allows you to have a relationship with God. So if you are visiting for the first time today or you're just starting to explore what God is all about, realize that most of the people in this room, they don't just believe there's a God out there and that he's unknowable. They know him. They have a relationship with him. And that's what God wants for you, but it comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ who came to earth to die in your place. And I encourage you, keep 
Keep seeking this. For some of you that are believers, you may dive deeper into this by studying apologetics and studying books. If you're kind of on the fence of faith, I want to encourage you to do a number of things. Maybe take a Bible with you today that's under these chairs. There's even a little plan in there that'll show you where to start. Read it for yourself. I used to not believe in Jesus, but I started reading the Bible for myself. It radically changed my life. It'll show you in that Bible where to even start reading in the New Testament. Maybe you just commit, I'm going to keep coming back here and exploring this. Or maybe you say, today, I want to know this Jesus. I do believe it. And if that's you, right after this service, our follow-up team, they're going to be right up here in the front right corner. If you have questions about Jesus, or you're saying, I do want to follow him, I want you to just come up after the service and talk with them. And they can answer your questions and help you in this process of beginning to get closer to Jesus. And so in a second, I'm going to pray. But again, I want to encourage you, come back next week. We're going to get into this also a really difficult, challenging topic of, it's a topic that I think people think about all the time, but don't realize they think about it, and that is what is wrong with our world, and how would we make it right? So I'm going to pray, and then we'll have a final song of worship, and then, and then we'll be done. So let me pray. Lord, we, we thank you so much that, that there is evidence that points to you. I thank you for the scientists that have discovered these amazing things with their life's work over these last 50 years, that they just point to you. And that, what, a, what a blessing that is to us. And Lord, we thank you that our faith has a reasonableness as its foundation. And we just love you, and may the truth of that spur us on to love you and follow you in an even deeper way. And we worship you now, and we thank you so much. In your name we pray, amen.